This is the Yonkazine Brief on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. In this episode of the Yonkazine Brief, we are speaking with Dr. Joshua A. Hill, an associate in the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Division at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Hill is also an attending physician at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, as well as an assistant professor at the University of Washington. Cancer immunotherapy seeks to harness the power of the immune system to eradicate malignant tissues. After decades of research, a number of cancer immunotherapies have shown great clinical results. Recently, Monoclonal antibodies that block key checkpoints on T-cells have improved survival in metastatic melanoma and induced anti-tumor effects in other cancers. Bispecific antibodies have mediated impressive responses in B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia and dramatic anti-tumor effects have been observed using adoptive T-cell immunotherapy, increasingly using genetic engineering to create tumor antigen-specific T-cells. But... There is, as with all anti-cancer therapeutics, risk associated with cancer immunotherapy. This risk can be broadly classified into autoimmune toxicity and cytokine-associated toxicity. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongesin Brief. We're speaking with Dr. Hill today about chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR-T, cell therapy, a technology that holds very high expectations for the future of cancer care. In fact, certain severe cancer types have shown remission rates up to 94% in CAR-T clinical trials, which is very impressive considering most patients in CAR-T trials have not responded to many, if not all, other available treatments. The first two CAR-Ts have recently been approved, and now there are over 240 CAR-T clinical trials that are ongoing. And while the CAR-T field is booming, and the technology is very exciting, doctors have noted several severe side effects in clinical trials. So just how safe is this new approach? We speak to Dr. Hill about some of his research regarding the risk of infection in CAR-T patients, as well as his perspective on where this technology is going in the near future. Dr. Hill, welcome to the Oncazine Brief. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. So first off, tell us about chimeric antigen receptor or CAR-T cell therapy. Can you describe the technology a little bit? Sure. So I am an infectious disease physician who sees patients treated with this type of immunotherapy. So certainly I'm not at the, uh, in the lab developing these therapies, but from a bird's eye view, essentially what this treatment does is that uh, engineers in the lab, genetic engineers can take um, the genetic code so that they can target T cells and the receptors on T cells to identify specific cells within the body. And specifically in this case, we're talking about tumor cells that express a certain protein on their cell surface. And so what the CAR T cell is, or the chimeric antigen receptor, is that we have designed a T cell receptor that contains a single chain variable fragment derived from a monoclonal antibody that's specific to a certain tumor antigen. And in this case, we're talking about CD19, which is on the surface of B cell malignancies. And this antibody fragment is combined with an intracellular T cell signaling sequence so that now we can express this T cell receptor on the surface of a T cell have it bind the CD19 antigen on tumor cells, activate the T cell, 
and have it release cytokines and a variety of other um, effector uh, proteins so that it will kill the cells. And the way that these are established is that um, the individual that has cancer will have uh, blood taken out from them and they'll have leukapheresis. The T cells from that person will be isolated. Then a specific lentivirus vector, there's also other retrovirus ways of doing this, will be used to essentially insert the DNA that encodes this receptor into the person's T cells, which will then express the receptor on their surface. These will be expanded using a variety of methods in vitro and then reinfused into the patient. So now you give the patient back T cells that are specifically targeting whatever the target of interest is. And in this case, we're talking about CD19 expressed on B cell malignancies. So if I understand it correctly, this is a very personalized approach to the treatment of cancer. Absolutely. This is, this is exactly um, what we talk about when we talk about personalized medicine and personalized approaches to treat cancer. And it has a number of benefits and a number of downsides as well. Certainly, the benefit is that you're giving someone back their own T-cell product. So that maximizes safety, right? We're using someone's own T-cell, so we're not worried about putting in a product, a blood product from some other unrelated donor um, who might have other infections or other issues, which requires a lot of screening. There's also uh, less concern for rejection because this is the person's own T-cells, so less of a chance that they will be rejected. Uh, so it's, it's absolutely personalized. Some of the limitations that come with that are that uh, there's a lot of expense with this. This is personalized to each individual, so everyone has to have their own product made. Certainly, there's been great leaps in the engineering of these T-cells so that we can do this much more quickly. But on average, it still takes about two weeks to make this product from um, the time that we take the blood out from a person until the time that we reinfuse it. So there, there's definitely interest in the field in making what we call off-the-shelf or off-the-shelf third-party donor products, where essentially we can have a bank, and this is thinking into the future, of you know, T-cells that specifically target specific types of tumors that are just sitting in a, a central uh, repository that we can thaw and infuse into a patient as soon as we need it. And that's kind of the pipe dream for this. But in the current time point, these are all personalized products. Now, considering the many different ways in how we can treat cancer today, how has this technology changed the landscape of oncology treatment in the past few years as a whole? So this has really been a revolution in the treatment of um, cancer. So many of the patients that we are enrolling onto these clinical trials and, and the patient population in which the FDA has approved um, the first two products for treatment are in patients who have relapsed and refractory disease. So these are patients that have often already undergone the most aggressive treatments that we have, including bone marrow transplants, and despite that have still relapsed. So these are patients that would otherwise be going on to either clinical trials if they had them available to them or other palliative uh, treatments and or ultimately moving on to hospice and not surviving. So we have been able to give these products to many patients who have had great responses. So we're definitely very excited about being able to use this. And it's, it's really developed an explosion in exploring this type of therapy to, uh, to treat lots of other types of cancer. So right now, the first two therapies have been approved for use in B-cell malignancies, hematologic malignancies. Um, but there's definitely a lot of interest in broadening this technology and what we've learned from treating these specific types of malignancies and applying it um, to safely approach other types of uh, cancers and also other types of infectious diseases that um, plague patients such as HIV. 
Okay, so what are the specific cancers that um, CAR T cells can treat? And can you tell us about which patient groups can potentially benefit the most from this technology? Absolutely. So, you know, for the long term, we're hoping that the sky is the limit with this type of um, therapy, but there's definitely different challenges and uh, issues that we have to overcome when trying to scale this to lots of different patient populations. So the area that uh, my research has been in and where a lot of the initial work has been in are in patients with B-cell malignancies. And specifically, these are patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemias, uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemias, and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. And one of the reasons why this group of malignancies has been really targeted is because most of these malignancies will constitutively express um, a protein on their surface called CD19 and a variety of others as well, um, which will be uh, a great target for these CAR T cells to target. So most of the malignancies will express this. And so having one product that is targeting specifically CD19, uh, which can be manufactured in a very similar way, um, makes it a very attractive and has been quite a successful approach to to curing these cancers and treating these cancers. For cancers such as acute myeloid leukemia, there's a much greater diversity of, of protein targets that are expressed on the surface of those malignant cells. So it makes it a little bit harder to find a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think those are some of those similar challenges that we're finding with other tumors. There's talks about trying to use this for other hematologic malignancies as well as solid tumors. Uh, but the challenge there is really finding a protein that's expressed across all cells of that tumor and that we can generate T cells that, that really can make a robust response to that protein uh, target and then effectively kill all of the cancer cells in the person's body. I see. Now, we're going to take a short break, after which we will be back with Dr. Hill. Welcome back to the Oncazine Brief. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Joshua Hill of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. In an earlier edition of the Oncazine Brief, we addressed some aspects and the high expectations for CAR T therapy. Although this novel technology has indeed proven to be very effective for some patients with very serious cancer types, there are, as with many other cancer therapies, some concerns. CAR-Ts have also been linked to severe side effects, including cytokine release syndrome, or CRS, and neurotoxicity. Many of these side effects may lead to stays in the intensive care unit. Cytokine release syndrome is a potentially life-threatening toxicity that has been observed following the administration of natural and bispecific antibodies and more recently following adoptive T-cell therapies for cancer. This adverse effect is associated with elevated circulating levels of several cytokines, including interleukin-6 and interferon gamma. Dr. Hill, you helped conduct a study that examined the risk of infection in patients treated with CD19 CAR T-cells. Tell us a little bit about the side effects observed and how these may be addressed. Yes, yeah, so you bring up the very important point that this treatment is not a panacea for um, treatment of cancers at this point in time. There's been a, a lot of effort over many years now in trying to make this safer, and there's still a lot to learn, but a lot has been learned over the past few years here to make these uh, approaches safer. Uh, on the infectious disease side, practicing in the hospital and seeing patients that are treated with these CAR T cells, we oftentimes are called in in consultation 
to help teams manage patients that present with high fevers, oftentimes have pulmonary infiltrates, have neurologic toxicity, and oftentimes we're, less, we're left trying to figure out whether patients have severe infections that are leading to these symptoms, whether they have sepsis, or whether these are side effects from the rapidly expanding CAR T cells, which are then rele releasing cytokines to kill off the malignant cells and causing essentially an endothelial um, activation and, and a sepsis-like syndrome. So uh, we see the whole gamut of symptoms anywhere from uh, mild fevers in patients that are otherwise asymptomatic but can last for a number of days or even longer, all the way to life-threatening toxicity where patients can have um, neurologic uh, symptoms, they can have severe pulmonary symptoms, require uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation. So we've, we've really seen the whole gamut. Um, and after doing, uh, you know, very comprehensive infectious disease workup, oftentimes we find nothing. And at that point, we'll feel safe with moving forward with treatments such as anti-interleukin-6 or steroids to try and uh, to suppress some of the symptoms of the CAR T-cell activity to kill the tumor. So certainly we're seeing a, a, a large spectrum of symptoms that these patients can experience. So but if you look at um, the aggressive immunosuppression, um, is there not a risk that it can limit the efficacy of the therapy? Is there a risk for that? Yeah, so there certainly is a the theoretical risk that if we give immunosuppressive therapy to uh, mitigate the symptoms as a result of these CAR T cells from expanding and doing the job that they're supposed to do, there's this theoretical risk that potentially it will be the the treatment will be less effective in uh, treating the underlying malignancy. I don't think that that has entirely bared out in the literature. It's been somewhat of a theoretical risk, um, and that really is more so with the steroids. So. You know, there is no official guideline for this, but I think the expert recommendation now is to really use anti-interleukin-6 or the tocilizumab therapy um, to directly block IL-6, which shouldn't have any direct effect on the CAR T cells. And the thought is that steroids might play more interference in the CAR T cells being able to do their job than anti-interleukin-6. Uh, so hopefully as we learn more, we can find more targeted ways to um, block some of the side effects without blocking the CAR T cell effect. And, and this is basically to address the, um, the issues and not to lose the efficacy of the treatment. Exactly. You know, this is a, a very uh, labor-intensive and expensive protocol for patients to go through. They get conditioning chemotherapy prior to getting this. So, you know, we're putting uh, patients at higher infection risk and other risks by giving their chemo, and sometimes this is their last shot. So we really want to do everything we can to maximize the efficacy of the treatment without, uh, uh, but get patients through it safely, certainly, um, and hopefully get them into a complete response and a remission. I see. Dr. Hill, can you tell us about um, how this study was conducted and the results that were found? Sure. So, you know, after our experience in being consulted to take care of these patients at our hospital, we certainly were interested in doing more of a systematic study to understand exactly what was the spectrum of infectious complications that we were seeing, um, how often were these life-threatening, uh, and could we potentially predict who were the patients that were more likely to develop um, infections and, and other uh, complications of this treatment? So um, a phase one, phase two clinical trial had been actively enrolling patients at our institution over the past few years. They had enrolled 133 patients with either non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or 
acute lymphocytic leukemia who had been treated with um, CAR T cells. It was actually a dose escalation study. So patients were um, randomized to get increasing doses, three different potential doses of CAR T cells. Uh, and there were some shifts in the type of chemotherapy that they were getting as well, because we do believe all these aspects of the therapy work together to potentially um, maximize the effect of this treatment. And so we basically did chart review on all these patients. We went back and looked through all of our medical records, all of our laboratory results, all of our consultation notes to really study who were the patients that were getting infections, how often were these happening, and what were the outcomes of these patients. So that was the motivation and the approach to this. Um, and after compiling all the data, and really we were focusing on the first 28 days after treatment, um, that's the time period during which all patients were followed at our center because patients are coming from all over the country and the world to get this therapy. They oftentimes go back to their um, local providers. And really what we were seeing was that most of the infections were happening in the first two weeks after uh, they got their CAR T-cell infusion. The majority of these infections were bacterial infections, and most of those were bacteremias or identification of a bacterial pathogen in the bloodstream. But interestingly, we did see uh, quite a few viral infections, some that often progressed from upper respiratory tract viral infections into the lower respiratory tract, which currently we don't have good treatments for and can be life-threatening. And even more interestingly, we saw quite a few invasive fungal infections. So this is despite patients being on some aspect of antifungal prophylaxis. Uh, and we did see some invasive mold infections in the lung and in the sinuses and the central nervous system. Uh, there were only a handful of these, but some of them were in patients that didn't have the classical risk factors for invasive fungal disease. So certainly the numbers were small, but this is um, a potentially evolving area that we're interested in and really look forward to seeing other centers report on what they found and see if uh, a similar pattern uh, is emerging. But for the most part, patients were not dying of infections. We were able to control them quite well with our standard approaches. Uh, and we think that we can really improve outcomes as we were learning the best cell dose of CAR T cells to give and the best type of chemotherapy. We saw that we were able to reduce the incidence of, of cytokine release syndrome, which was the main driver of subsequent infections. And by driving down cytokine release syndrome, we can reduce the number of infections that these patients are getting. Now, were these results what you and your team expected going into the study? You know, it was it was hard to know. I don't think we had any preconceived notions of exactly what we would find. Um, one of the things that we were particularly interested in looking at was the type of infections that these patients were getting. So uh, one of the unique aspects of the CAR T-cell therapy to treat B-cell malignancies is that it targets CD19. And so this is a protein that's expressed on all healthy, normal B-cells in addition to the malignant B cells. So these patients get profound B cell depletion after their um, CAR T cell therapy. And B cells are responsible for making antibodies and immunoglobulins. So part of the concern was that these patients would be at particularly increased risk for encapsulated bacteria, which is what we classically think about um, being at higher risk for patients that have low immunoglobulin levels. And so we didn't necessarily see that. We really saw the spectrum of bacterial pathogens that are typical for patients undergoing chemotherapy uh, and who have indwelling central venous catheters. These tend to be skin and mucosal associated bacteria like staphylococci and streptococci, as well as some of the uh, gut associated pathogens like Enterobacteriaceae. So we really saw the typical um, spectrum of infections, but we don't have great long-term follow-up data on these patients yet. And it will, it will be interesting to see if these patients are at risk for 
encapsulated organisms uh, later on down the road. Okay. We're going to take a break now, after which we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Hill. Welcome back to the Oncozine Brief. We are here speaking to Dr. Hill of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Dr. Hill, how does this infection risk compare to that of chemotherapy? So it's essentially similar to chemotherapy, and these patients all get chemotherapy um, in preparation for their CAR T-cell infusion. But as I mentioned, the the distinct risk factor in these patients is the B-cell depletion that results, and and that can really be prolonged. These CAR T-cells have been shown to persist for up to two, three, and even four or five years. Um, Obviously, we're learning more as time goes forward after patients have been treated. Um, But Given that persistence, these patients can have profound and prolonged B-cell depletion, and what we don't really know is how that will affect these patients' risk for infection, how long we need to give patients antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal prophylaxis, whether or not patients can respond to vaccines, um, whether or not they need to be revaccinated. These are all um, open areas for uh, inquiry in the field. And that is the unique aspect of the CAR T-cell therapy for B-cell malignancies. And, and when we, we can't really scale this concept to other types of CAR T-cells because they may each carry their own risk depending on what targets that they have and, and other off, off-target toxicities that they have. So other cells that they might kill because of the way that we target these cells. I see. So how important is it now to consider infection risk in cancer care and which patients are most susceptible to infection? Uh, Infection risk and cancer care are two issues that have kind of gone hand in hand since we started using chemotherapies to treat cancer. Uh, Certainly the one of the primary limitations to giving high doses of aggressive chemotherapy to patients to really wipe out their underlying cancer is the fact that this typically goes along with wiping out someone's immune system and putting them at extremely high risk for infectious complications. Uh, back in the you know, early 50s and 60s, when we were first starting to use bone marrow transplantation, the aside from disease relapse, the most common complication that would lead to patients not uh, making it through their transplant were infection risks. So certainly as we've uh, gone forward over the past few decades, some of the greatest advances in helping patients get through their cancer care safely such that their underlying malignancy is cured now and we are able to support patients through so that they don't die of then an infectious complication are our approaches to infection prevention and treatment. So we've really optimized in a lot of ways our ability to prevent infections and when we do get breakthrough, we're able to treat them quite well. We know that patients that get the most aggressive type of chemotherapy that have the most profound and prolonged effects on their immune reconstitution, so patients that have prolonged neutropenia, lymphopenia, um, are the patients that are at the highest risk for infection. So really it's, you know, the, the patient's recovery of their own endogenous immune system is the most important thing to prevent infections. We can only do so much with giving antibiotics, et cetera. So really it's patients that get the most aggressive therapies that are at the highest risk and uh, better ways to support patients to prevent infections will allow us to give more aggressive chemo um, to hopefully get better cure rates. So that's what we're working towards. Dr. Hill, in a 2014 study published in Blood, the Journal of the American Society of Hematology, uh, titled Current Concepts in the Diagnosis and Management of Cytokine Release Syndrome, 
Daniel Lee, Rebecca Gardner, and colleagues read about their, their system to grade the severity of CRS in individual patients and a treatment algorithm for management of CRS based on the severity of the adverse events. Their goal is to maximize the chance for therapeutic benefit from the immunotherapy while minimizing the risk for life-threatening complications of CRS. How does this help to make CAR T-cell therapy safer? Yeah, so that was a very uh, important paper and one that I really reviewed quite a bit in the process of designing our study and and thinking about the results. Um, Certainly, as any new type of um, therapeutic option to treat patients that has such a profound effect on the immune system comes out and then other, you know, profound toxicities, it's important to have groups like this who are experts in the field from multiple different institutions really come together and and put on paper what uh, the field as a whole has come to appreciate about these therapies, uh, how to find a more standardized approach to grading severity of CRS so that at different institutions we can really do things in similar ways and then try to learn from them um, as a result of that. So, you know, really they, they helped lay out how to approach patients who develop cytokine release syndrome, uh, how to think about these patients, and when and how to intervene so that we can minimize any sort of uh, bad outcomes from patients that develop this type of uh, issue. So I think that paper and then uh, multiple papers from uh, groups here at the Hutch and other groups around the world have since come out that are really starting to uncover the underlying biology of what's going on in these patients and finding ways to really risk stratify patients both before they even get their CAR T cell infusion and then in the early kind of first you know few days after they get their infusion to determine who is going to go on to develop cytokine release syndrome and think about ways that we can give either prophylactic or preemptive uh, treatment approaches in these patients to minimize that. So I think as we underco- uh, uncover the biology and we learn what are the biomarkers that um, predict who will develop this, and we've also really learned how to tailor our CAR T cells based on the dose of cells that we give and how that um, must take into account the underlying disease burden that patients have. Um, at what time point do we send patients in to uh, get their CAR T cells? There was a great paper in the New England Journal of Medicine just in the last week showing that patients that had um, lower uh, residual disease at the time of getting their CAR T cells had better outcomes. So all of these different uh, pieces of the puzzle will help towards making this safer. Okay. And are improved CAR Ts being developed and what needs to be the focus for the this technology now that it moves forward? Right. So um, there is a lot of work being done um, all over the world in improving CAR T cells and, and uh, finding ways to make them uh, more efficacious, to make them uh, faster to produce, cheaper to produce, um, and certainly being able to scale this to other disease types. So I think, you know, th- there's a, a lot of work that can be done here. Um, and I think there's there's definitely room for caution. We do have two FDA-approved agents now that um, are able to be used now to treat patients with refractory and, and relapsed malignancies. Um, but certainly, uh, we're, we continue to be humbled by the results. Many patients um, don't have sustained responses to these treatments. And I think every day what we do is we learn from the patients that have great responses and we learn from the patients that don't respond. And all of this will help us to really tailor these therapies so that the most patients can have the best responses as possible. 
and then thinking about making this um, a safer product to give to patients so that we don't have any deaths due to cytokine release syndrome or neurotoxicity. And if we are able to, to jump over some of those hurdles, perhaps we uh, will eventually get to a place where we can give these frontline before patients um, have gotten other chemotherapy um, so that we're not only able to give this when patients are kind of at the end of, of their options as far as treatments. So looking at uh, this therapy, right, I mean, it's uh, primarily approved right now. The two that are approved are uh, basically focusing on adult patients. Um, What about uh, research in in maybe an older population or in pediatrics? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, there's the the very first product was actually approved in pediatrics uh, and adolescents for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So that product that was the first one approved is for ALL in um, in kids and young and young adults. So that one is out there. Um, and then the second product that was approved was for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in adults, and that does include older adults. Uh, some of the work out of the uh, Fred Hutch group has shown that you know older adults do seem to have uh, increased risk for neurotoxicity. And certainly we know that, you know, as patients come in with more comorbidities, we do see higher rates of um, complications and infectious complications as well. So, um, you know, there are a lot of pediatric groups that are actively working on these technologies. And I think, uh, you know, there's there's more to, to be seen there and a lot that will be coming out over the next year. Um, so hopefully we can continue to really make this this product and this therapy available for a broader uh, section of the population that needs it. Thank you, Dr. Hill. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. After a short break, we'll be back with more about a new book by Neil Canavan discussing the power of the immune system to fight cancer. Welcome back. In our conversation with Dr. Hill, we addressed some of the adverse events or side effects of treatment with a very new targeted therapy designed to unleash the immune system to kill cancer. In his new book, A Cure Within, published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press, author Neil Canavan writes about the power of the immune system. Neil is a veteran journalist with more than 20 years of experience reporting on science and medicine. For the last five years, he's reported exclusively on issues related to drug development in cancer. There are only a few words like cancer, Neil writes, that have such a visceral personal impact. Probably everyone over the age of 30 knows someone who is impacted by cancer, or maybe impacted him or herself. We may know a friend, a family member, someone lost too soon. But generally we don't want to talk about this because we don't understand cancer, and there is not so much we can do. Since the early 1970s there is a war against cancer. We fight this dreadful disease, but are we making progress? Are we really winning? Defeating cancer is one of the medical scientists' greatest challenges. Over the last 30 years, we've seen many promising treatment options. Some work, some fail. But what can be said is that there is an intense interest in the progress made, as well as the pioneers involved, in developing novel treatment options for people affected by cancer. Neil's book is the story of both. In his book, he talks about the progress and the pioneers. He focuses on the revolutionary science of something called cancer immunotherapy, which includes the CAR-T therapy we talked about earlier with Dr. Hill. Cancer immunotherapy, better known as immuno-oncology, or IO, is still in its infancy. 
but the concept, mobilizing the immune system to recognize and attack cancer, has been imagined and occasionally been attempted for over 100 years. In the early 1900s, German Nobel laureate Paul Ehrlich imagined an ideal therapy to treat disease, a drug precisely targeted to an invader which, if linked to a toxic chemical that would act like a missile, could carry a destructive payload directly to a specific disease. Ehrlich said that this novel drug would be called a magic bullet. Such a therapy, he theorized, would be ideal for countless diseases, including cancer. And today, while there are a number of very targeted therapies for the treatment of cancer, it's only just recently that significant, or as Neil writes, unprecedented progress has been made. With the use of newly approved immuno-oncology treatments, there are now reports of cancer patients with advanced disease living years beyond all prior expectations. And interestingly enough, while oncologists generally don't say that a patient is cured, it seems that these once terminally ill patients are now considered cured. This has never happened before. It means that the way we treat cancer is about to change forever. This revolution, as Neil calls it, was not sparked by the development of a novel immuno-oncology drug, but by the evolution of an entirely new way of thinking about cancer and how to manage the disease. In short, going forward and where possible, oncologists will not use pharmaceutical drugs to treat cancer, at least not directly. Rather, they will treat a patient's immune system with a specific drug, and then the patient's immune system will be unleashed to kill the cancer. This evolutionary thinking is based on decades of basic research and billions of dollars of investment designed to build a foundation leading to our current thinking. Neil's book is a story about the tenacious few scientists who refuse to abandon novel scientific concepts. Based entirely on interviews with medical researchers, the book tells the story of the pioneers of immuno-oncology. It's a story of failure, resurrection, and success. Above all, it's a story about discovery and intuition and cunning. It's a peek into the lives and thoughts of some of the most gifted men and women, the medical scientists, who are, on a daily basis, working hard to find a cure for cancer. And no, this book is not a boring textbook. Neil tells a story about the technology that is today saving lives. And he shares the story of these amazing, breathing, thinking, charming, often arrogant and funny people who make this possible. A Cure Within, published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press, is available everywhere where good books are sold and via our website, oncazine.com. This edition of the Oncazine Brief was originally recorded on February 12th, 2018. For us here at the Oncazine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio in addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange. And you can also download our program via iTunes. You can now also listen to the Oncazine Brief in the United Kingdom via UK Health Radio. And in Arizona, you can listen to the program on Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check our online journal, Oncazine, at oncazine.com. And we know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, 
or Twitter. And we will post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you, and thank you all. And thank you for listening, and join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncozine Brief. The Oncozine Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by Inpress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it. In the next episode of The Oncogene Brief, we talk with Dr. Sean McCarty, President and Chief Executive Officer at Cytomics, a company using antibody therapeutics in oncology to develop a novel therapeutic class of highly targeted pro-body therapeutics. Dr. McCarty joined Cytomics in 2010 and has more than 20 years of experience in the biotechnology industry, which includes roles in R&D, business development, financing, and general management. Until next time, this is the youngest in brief.